Good morning, SBC. It is uh, good to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, will you please open them up to 2 Peter 2, chapter 7 uh, to 10. That's 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 to uh, verse 10. We are going to be continuing on our series this morning called Priceless. Um, and uh, it's this wonderful, wonderful book that we've been doing. And I just want to give us a brief recap of what's gone on before. I, I know that uh, there's been so much that is said and often we can forget. And Peter, even in his book, says, I want to stir up a way of reminder of the valuable things uh, of our faith. And so I want to do that for us this morning by just giving us a brief recap of the, the value of what Peter has said. And we've called the series Priceless because we have this incredible faith. Uh, Peter says in chapter 1, verse 1, that we have a faith that is an equal standing to the apostles. Just stop and be in awe of that for this moment, that we have a faith that is on equal standing of the apostles, not uh, subpar, not below average, but something that is valuable. And Peter wants us to grasp that because he wants us not to neglect it. He doesn't want us to have this incredible, valuable, priceless faith, but ignore it and put it aside. But he wants us to take advantage of it all, to know that God, uh, because he's given us his faith, has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. He's given us these wonderful promises in which we are able to live out for the righteousness uh, and glory of God. And uh, so he says, take hold of it by pursuing Jesus, by going after him. And that's really his focal point here. He wants us to be a people that love Jesus, that pursue after him, that go wholeheartedly after Jesus with everything we've got by, as he will go on to say, adding certain qualities to our faith. Because if we grasp that, says Peter, we will live a life that is fruitful, a life that's full of purpose. We'll have an assurance of our salvation and it will lead to a life that runs well and we will be rewarded well because of it. Now, Peter has to address uh, certain false teachers in the, that have arisen in the church. And seems to be the purpose of him writing this letter as a whole is that there are some that have come up and said that the apostles have cleverly devised up myths and plans so that they might control the church. And certain things that they have taught just aren't simply true. And so Peter has to be combative against that to make sure that the church realizes that they have not made up these certain doctrines. And these things are really pertaining to the second coming of Christ and its final judgment. And so Peter, at the end of verse, I mean, end of chapter one and, and, and going off into chapter two and chapter three, argues for uh, the second coming. And he does this in two ways at the end of chapter one. He does it by saying, well, I'm, we have told you that Jesus is going to come in glory and in power. We have not made this up because we have actually seen this wonderful glory of Christ. We have seen it at the Mount Transfiguration. We saw it there in person. We heard the voice of God said, this is my son. This is the king who's going to come again. And he's also the one who will save the world. And, and so we have heard it. We have seen it. It's not something we've made up. He, he appeals to his experience. But he goes to even a greater authority, and that is prophetic scripture where he will say, well, not only, don't only take my word for it, but also look at the Old Testament prophets. They have spoken about the coming of Christ the first time, the second time, and the final judgment, and he appeals to that. Then he moves over in chapter 2, and he becomes rather combative against the false teachers themselves, showing their falsehood and showing their motive being greed and the desire to be able to live out life. And that's why they live out the passions of life, and, and that's why they're denying the second coming, because it's so easy to be able to live life 
we want to if we aren't ever going to be judged for it if we, and we aren't ever expecting Jesus to return again. And so he shows their motive. And then he goes on to say, but if those who buy into this and don't follow Christ and don't know Jesus and these false teachers themselves, they will be judged. And, and last week, Matt preached on and showing and proving that there is going to be a final judgment by looking at three examples of judgment that have happened in the past already. Uh, the angels that have, uh, the fallen angels, how they were judged, flood and Sodom and Gomorrah. But it, those last little sections have been rather challenging, haven't they? I know they might have made many feel uncomfortable as the words that Peter was speaking were rather direct and maybe come across rather harsh. But I want us to remind us that Peter, as he writes this letter, does so out of love. And if you are parents, you will know that sometimes you have to give harsh words and harsh realities out of love to your children. It can't always be the, the fluffiness of this, of this life. You have to speak hard, hard truths to them. For example, if you, my son likes to pick. Um, he, he, my, him and my wife are doing that recently. He essentially, he likes to make a big mess, but he enjoys the idea of baking. And we can teach him the wonders of a stove. We can teach him the wonders of an oven and all the lovely, delicious things that you can make with it. But it will not be loving of us if we don't t teach him and warn him of the dangers of a hot stove plate or the hotness of an oven and the dangers of boiling water. That would not be loving. And in a similar way, Peter goes and he tells us the harsh realities of what will happen to those who follow after the false teachers' teaching and if they do not accept Christ and what will happen to these false teachers. And he does so because he wants to love us and warn us. And so that's where we've kind of find ourselves so far. That's what's happened. I hope that wasn't too long. Uh, but that's where we go. Peter has just given us these three examples of uh, three examples of judgment, and now this morning he's going to give us an example of rescue, an example of rescue. So keep that in mind as we read our passage this morning. It's uh, two Peter two verses seven to ten. It should be on the screen for you as well. It says the following. And if he rescued righteous lots greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, verse 8. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds, and he saw and heard, that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise rescue. And so here Peter uh, chooses the example of Lot as the example of rescue. And I, I wonder why. It's, it's such an odd example, Lot. I mean, there are probably far greater examples in Scripture that you could have thought of. You could have thought of the Israelites being rescued under the first Passover as the angel of death went over Egypt, killing all the firstborns. That was a great example of rescue. Or at the Red Sea, as the Israelites make it, but the Egyptian army gets closed up underwater. Or even Rahab and the walls of Jericho, how she is rescued um, and the rest of Jericho is judged upon. Those are, those are great examples, but yet here we choose lots, not exactly a hero of the faith or someone that we would name our children after. At least I don't know anyone named a lot. Um, and, and here he is, chosen by Peter as the example. 
And uh, I think the reason why Peter does this is not just haphazardly or because it connects well to Sodom, but because I think Peter realizes that the people he is writing to would have related to Lot a lot. <laughs> no pun intended. They would have seen themselves, as he uses that example, as actually I, I can relate to his lifestyle. Lot, while considered righteous, and he certainly was, Peter says so in 2 Peter 2, he calls him righteous three times. And even if we look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, Peter, uh, Lot is rescued and only the righteous were rescued. So even God deemed Lot as righteous, and so he was. But as we look at the example of Lot, what we see is that Lot was a righteous man that certainly lived inconsistently. And, uh, and that would have been easy for the people to relate to. And maybe even ourselves this morning, we might be considered righteous, but we aren't necessarily living consistently to what we are considered. And if we look at Lot, Lot was easily sidetracked by the glitz and the glamour of this world. He, when he and his uncle get to choose the land, he chooses the best land for himself. There's a bit of greed there. He has Sodom and Gomorrah. He moves close to Sodom because he sees the lights and the sounds. He sees the sensual conduct that is happening. And yet there is a part of him that desires that. And so what happens? He moves in toward that. When he's there, he desires the positions of power that he goes to the gate where he would have judged the city. There is this lifestyle that he is pursuing that is not necessarily connected to his righteousness. And in a very similar way, the people that Peter is writing to are living lifestyles that are vastly different to what God has called them to. They aren't living as living sacrifices, but rather how they are going is they are going to pursue after sensual lifestyle, going after things that their flesh desperately wants. And maybe, and as I've said it already this morning, it would, we must be careful not to just look at the people and go, yeah, you too are able to be lots, but maybe ourselves this morning, we may be able to look at our lifestyles and say, man, maybe we are inconsistent Maybe we are like Lot as well. We hear Sunday sermons. We listen to it preach. We might even at the response time commit to change. But our lifestyle that is lived throughout the week is vastly different um, to what we are on, on Sunday. The way we deal uh, with certain things, our friendships, our, our hobbies, our habits, our language, those might be very different to the way God has called us to live. And so this morning, we might be able to ourselves be able to relate to the person of Lot. And, and I hope, and I think the part of the reason why Peter tells us that is that it doesn't stir up an excitement because we aren't necessarily David or a Daniel, but we're a Lot. And a Lot and us who live like this will be ultimately be a very frustrated person. Lot was incredibly frustrated. And that might seem odd because he went after this type of lifestyle but he was ended and left as frustrated. We see this with Peter. Peter says this in the text. He says that Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, and he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw. So when we think about it, actually, maybe Peter was right, that Lot was incredibly frustrated by what he saw, because though he was dwelling in wickedness, he wasn't going after it wholeheartedly per se, and there would have been this frustration in him, hoping that the people of Sodom would catch a wake-up call and, and maybe be, not do the actions that they do. We see that when the angels arrive in his house and the men are all outside calling for the angels because they want to do acts to them that they shouldn't, Lot tries to reason with them, and yet they do not listen. There would have been a a frustratedness to Lot that these 
people just aren't necessarily changing. That there he was maybe even hoping that he would be a witness to them of righteousness and that they would see him and then change. But this often happens to people who try to be witnesses to a lost world by being a part of the world, is that ultimately there is very, very little change that takes place. You see that the people of Sodom didn't take him seriously when he tried to become a a person of power, to be a judge at the gate, maybe in his heart saying, I can bring a change, that just mock him and say, who is this alien that he would think that he could come here and be a part of this? His own uh, sons-in-laws who don't heed his warning when he comes and says, the city is going to be destroyed, run away. They don't. They mock him and think he is just joking. This foolish man, does he really think this is, this is happening? And ultimately, they will be destroyed with the city. And I think in, in many, many ways, uh, we can relate to Lot in the sense. If we ourselves relate to Lot, sometimes we mask our desire uh, for the worldly things, for passions of this world, for the, the sensual fleshly desires that we have in us by masking it under the umbrella of evangelism. I know I certainly have done this in the past. Well, if I just show my friends, my colleagues, my family members that I am no different to the way I was before I was saved, maybe then maybe then they will come to know the Jesus that I have. If I continue on going to the parties that I did, speak the way I did, laugh the way I did, do business the way I did, then maybe then they will see that they too can accept this Jesus and don't have to change. But what we see in this particular story is that there is no success that happens with that. You are left frustrated. And from personal experience, I can tell you, you are left frustrated with people not wanting to buy anything buy into this Jesus because there is no difference in you. Church history shows us this as well, that the church that has decided to become like the world in order to gain the world has lost the world because the world looks at them and sees that there is nothing to gain in becoming like you because they already have you. And so we just know that if we do this, we will not gain anyone at all, but we will be left frustrated like Lot was. And Jesus teaches us very differently as well. Matthew 5, that famous passage of, you are the light of the world. Light in darkness, there's a vast difference. Jesus says, you aren't meant to put your light under a basket in order to become like the darkness, but take the, uh, the basket off so that your light might shine. Be vastly different, says Jesus. It's in being very different to the world, showing your righteousness in pursuit after Christ that the world sees you and the darkness starts to disappear through your lights. It's a change that happens through living righteously. It's a, we are to be salt of the world. What did salt do in the ancient world? It would stop decay. It stopped decay. And, and so we too are meant to stop the decay, the moral decay of this world and see the injustices and fight against it. Not applaud it or pretend that we are nonchalant towards it like it's all okay. There is a change that needs to happen. We are different to the world. And if we aren't, as righteous people in Christ we are going to be incredibly frustrated even if we try to partake in the world. But I, but I also think, friends, that one of the big reasons why we are frustrated and why the big reasons why Lot was frustrated is that he was unsatisfied. He was incredibly unsatisfied. Having tasted the, the joys of God and then running after the world had left him frustrated because now what he was tasting fails to compare with what he was having in God. And that what happens to us as we become Christians, the things that we once enjoyed 
aren't nearly as good as they were because we have tasted the richness of Christ. And as we joy Christ and taste Him and we run back to the world, it, it seems to lack substance. There is very, very little enjoyment that happens and we are left frustrated and unsatisfied. But also, ultimately, because we have wandered away from Christ, our relationship with Him has become stale, dull, weary, and there's just this place of joylessness and, and, and just that we are frustrated because nothing that we have is giving us what we want because we aren't running to the bread of life, the fountain of life, to Jesus Christ and enjoying him. And so if we become like lots and we give up the righteousness that we have and pursue after the world, we are going to be left frustrated and give up the joy that we ultimately have in Christ. And that should not be the case for us as believers. For as Christians, there is a fullness and true satisfaction that only comes in pursuing Christ that the rest of the world cannot gain. There is a joy that we have on offer for us that is far greater than anything that the world can have, no matter how rich, no matter how much they seem to have at their fingertips. They cannot gain the joy that you have even in your little and let me explain. There, there's obviously, I think every, one of, every single one of us has an example of a friend or a colleague that lives unrighteously and uh, has everything and, and goes and has the best parties, enjoys the best foods, enjoys the best coffees. And this is what we would call as Christians common grace. God gives the opportunity to the righteous and to the wicked all good things. So well, not all good things, but we get to taste good things. We get to enjoy the coffee. No matter if you're Christian or not, you can have the best coffee. You can have the best fillet steak. There is a joy that everyone can have there. And that's what we call common grace. The God sends rain on the good and the bad. It just happens. But there is a limit to the enjoyment that they can have, that we can have far more in it. And let me explain that. They can only drink so much coffee... And when the coffee is done, the joy goes away. And they're left wanting more and more and more. But for a believer, it's different. As we partake of this delicious brown liquid called coffee, I mean, you can tell I'm a fanatic. As you, as you drink it and enjoy it, what happens is, is we believers, we have the opportunity not to just enjoy the taste, but enjoy the one that has given us this taste to allow us to, to drink and partake of it and go, oh, Lord, do you, do you, can you taste that? How, how amazing is it that you have granted to me this enjoyment or to enjoy the steak or to enjoy this travel, to see the sight, to see the sunset? We go past the beauty of the sunset to the beauty of the one who painted the sunset. And the satisfaction is in God, the one who has given us those things and not in the things. It leads to worship. It leads to a satisfaction that's lasting because what happens is when the coffee's done, when the sunset's gone, you're not going, ah, I've left wanting more because God is still there and he is your delight. And so there's a joy. It's what Augustine would call sovereign joy. It's a delight in God in the things that he has graciously given us. If we can learn that, oh, man, would we be more joyful? And I'm speaking to myself this morning. I did not have the greatest joyful day yesterday. Oh, but man, we can do this. If we, we partake of this, we can have joy in all things. And, and it's lasting. It's lasting because even when those things are stripped away, God is still there. And he has become our source of our joy. And so I hope this morning as you hear this, you don't want to become a lot. And if you are a lot, you want to change. Because being a lot seems to be joyless and, and purposeless and, 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 and a waste 
We want to be something else. So how do we guard or safeguard ourselves against these against becoming lots? And we've said this over and over in the series. We've said what you believe affects your behavior. What you believe affects your behavior. So what are some of the core issues that we might be having that are changing us into becoming lots? And I think the first one that I want to tackle this morning and there might be many, but I just want to talk about two, is that we have a false understanding that Christ came for my pleasure. We have this idea that Jesus came and died for me, and now that I am with him, he is there to give me all of my dreams and my desires. That his goal and ambition is to make sure that I will reach the top in whatever I desire to reach, that I will gain whatever I desire to gain, and we go for it. And when we have this perspective Every part of our actions and attitude mean that we do what we want. And we can see this in our prayer life. Your prayer life is one that says, Lord, let my will be done with the power of heaven here on earth, not let your will be done um, on earth as it is in heaven. Our prayers is all about what can I gain and what can I achieve? Can you help? He ultimately, we are the puppet master and he is the puppet and he must dance to our tune as we do our thing. And unfortunately, friends, I want to say, may I actually say, fortunately, friends, may I say that, that God has not come for just our gain of our pleasure and give us our dreams and goals. That's not it. It's something far greater than that. It's John 3:16, the famous verse that we all know that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The purpose of Christ's coming is to bring and reignite us to himself how we have rebelled against him, that we are slaves to sin, but through the death and resurrection of Christ, if we have faith in Jesus and we grasp that faith and believe in him, we are moved from being slaves to sin to slaves to righteousness. We come under a new authority. We're no longer under the world, but we're under this king, this glorious king. But he is our king. And that means that he tells us what to do and we live for him at his command, not the world's and our own command. It's not for us, but for him. And this king in his resurrected body, as he was raised again, gave us permission to go out and make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that I've commanded you and baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Peter and Anne are doing as they go travel. They have not lost sight of this commission that they have been given as they enjoy what God has graciously given them. They get to go out with this mission in mind. I'm still called. It doesn't matter I'm retired. I'm still called to do what Christ has called me to do. And friends, that will mean if we are to follow Christ and follow this king that we have to sacrifice. We have to give up this world. We are not here to gain much in this world, but to gain much for the kingdom of our king. And Jesus calls us and he says to us in Matthew 16, verse 24, he says the following, he says, if anyone will come after me, if you're going to be my follower, let him deny himself. Deny himself. Consider that. Take up his cross. Oh, the cross. I know we, we glamorize it, but it's a, and it was a, a painful execution, a death, give, dying to self. And follow me, says Jesus. We are to give up our indulgences and our dreams and our desires and follow the ones that Christ has called us to. But in that is life. In that is purpose. That doesn't mean there is no joy. That's the irony of it. As we give up the joys of this world, we gain the joys, a far greater joy in Christ. 
We gain him. And even in the persecution, says Jesus, there's a, there's a gladness, there's a rejoicing, there's a happiness, there's a blessedness. Matthew 5, verses 10 and 12 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, happy are those when others revile against you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And there's this blessedness that comes with this. But friends, it is, God is not there to give you your pleasures, but in, to call you to follow him. And when you do that, he will give you all the pleasures that you have as you follow him. The second thing that I think that we need to get right, and the second core issue that we have, is we doubt the goodness of God. We doubt his goodness. I think one of the primary issues is that we drift off and become like lots. It's because we think we have a skewed perspective of God's goodness. And I think it plays itself out in two ways. The first way is that we doubt that God is really good at all. We see God as this old, strict man who's boring and has given us rules because he just wants to sap our joy. He's that old man down the street that when you rode your bikes past, he shouted at you for making too much noise. And so, so, like, keep quiet. Don't do this. These are the rules that you need to do. And, and, and we think he's just doing that just to sap our joy, but that's not the case. And if we have that kind of understanding that he's this old man in heaven to sap our joy, then his commands we just don't listen to and we don't obey it and we become like lots. I think the second way it happens is we assume in God's goodness that God just ultimately wants us to be happy. And so though God has given us his commands to obey and follow, he wants us to do them. But even above the desire for us to be obedient is the desire that we would be happy. And so if my flesh says this would make me happy, I can pursue after it. And even if that's disobeying God, it's okay because God just wants me to be happy. And so he's happy that the fact that I'm happy even if it's sin. Does that make sense? And so we become like Lot and we become sinful and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And so, man, I think what needs to happen is that we need to understand that that's not the reality. That's a skewed perspective on God's goodness. The reality of the matter is God, does, uh, God in his goodness has given us these commands not to sap our joy, but in a following these commands that we would have the ultimate joy. God is creator of you and me, knows that we are able to do certain things and gain joy and gain much. That he has given these commands not to take away our joy, but to in doing these commands and living righteously and pursuing after him, ultimately we will have the perfect fulfilled life that he desires for us, not apart from it. And so he's not trying to sap our joy and he's not going to let it go. It's in following these commands. And we need to grasp that because if we get that, we are able to lay down the false promises of joy of the flesh. In light, my God is good and I do not understand why he says I cannot have that, but I'm going to trust him and obey him because I know that in this is life and in the false promises of the flesh is death. And so we pursue after him ultimately. I hope that made sense to you. So how do we safeguard, sorry, how do we safeguard us, uh, ourselves from uh, becoming like uh, Lot? Uh, there are a couple of things that I think that we need to, that we need to do. And I think the, the first one is that we need to stay close to Jesus. 
we need to pursue after him. There's a closeness that needs to happen. And, and that, th- this means for us as believers that sometimes we can know Jesus, but we can be far from him. But if we are going to safeguard ourselves from becoming like a lot, then we need to make sure that we are closely connected to Jesus. For in that closeness, we will avoid becoming like Lot. We see that Jesus gives us this, uh, tells us this in, in John 15, verse 5, uh, this famous verse. He says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If we are to live the life that Christ has called us to and to avoid wandering away, there is a need for us to abide in him. Like a, a vine to a branch, there's a, there's a closeness to that. There is not this farness. It's, it's right in. We are connected to him. J.C. Rowell explains it like this. I've quoted it before, but I think it's so good I'll say it again. It says, to abide in Christ means to keep up a constant, a habit of constant close communication with him, to be always leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out our hearts to him and using him as a fountain of life and strength, as our chief companion and best friend. To have his words abiding in us is to keep his sayings and precepts continually before our memories and minds, to make them the guide of our actions and the rules of our daily conduct and behavior. And when we do this, when we stay close to Christ, we will be satisfied in him. We will be delighting in him. We will be daily going to the bread of light and feasting on him. We'll be going to the, the rivers of life and drinking of him. And we will be satisfied in him. So when temptation comes our way and says, here we go, we go, we see them for what they are, the scraps, the rubbish. We don't partake of it because we have been feasting on the main meal. We've been enjoying Christ regularly. And so when the world comes and says, he has a desire, he has something, eat of it, you go, no, because I am enjoying of the main meal. And as we start to understand the words of Jesus in John 10, verse 10, when he says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. We see that as just to steal my joy, kill my relationship and destroy my relationship with God. And so I don't go after it. But our Jesus continues to say, I have come to give life and it abundantly and we taste and feast of him. And we run to him. But also this closeness and God in our love for Jesus allows us to suffer and sacrifice for him. If you love someone, you are willing to sacrifice for them. But if that love is gone, you are less willing to do that. And if you love Christ, you will make sure that you would be willing to sacrifice even your dreams and desires for him. But if that love sizzles out and disappears, You'll, be found, you'll find yourself going after what you want over what he wants. It's like the relationship of a newborn baby. I have one. He's, he is uh, three and a, a bit months old. So I'm speaking from current experience. Uh, it, it's a relationship like no other in the world. No other relationship could wake you up at all hours of the morning, cried every and anything, demand things, cost you so much, the sacrifice of things that you want, and you would continue on doing it, Right? You wouldn't. If you had a friend that woke you up at three times in the middle of the night for the next six months, you would no longer be friends. You would cast them off. But for this love, for this bubbly, smiley thing, sometimes you sacrifice. And the same is with Christ. The closer you are to him, oh man, you're willing to give up. So if we are to guard ourselves from not friends, this is what Peter wants for us. Pursue after Jesus. Pursue after him. 
The second way in which we can safeguard against doing this is that we need to uh, make sure that we reflect on the cross. Continually think about the cross. And this does a number of things for us. It reminds us, again, as we do this, as we partake of communion and reflect on the cross, as we read books about the cross, as we read the passion sections in Scripture, which I encourage you all to do, read those regularly, meditate upon the cross. As we do that, it reminds us of God's goodness and love towards us. There is no greater demonstration of the love of God than Jesus dying on the cross for you. And if you have that at the forefront of your minds regularly, what happens is you do not doubt his goodness. Because remember, one of the core issues is that we doubt his goodness. So if we keep him in the, the framework of the cross in our minds, we don't doubt his goodness and we will obey him and follow him and commit ourselves to him because we love him. But also the cross reminds us of the vileness of sin. You can't dwell on the cross and see that the eternal Son of God had to die this brutal death where he was beaten beyond recognition, forsaken by the Father, die this brutal death, and think sin is okay. That God delights in it and just wants you to be happy in it. It makes you again recheck your life and say, these things that I am doing, God is not pleased, and, and, you, and you stay away from it. And the more and more you do that, believer, the more and more you will hate sin and pursue after Jesus. Lastly, under the things that we can do to safeguard against ourselves against this is that we need to live in light of the second coming. Live in light of the second coming. This is what Peter is fighting for. He wants us to live in light of the second coming and a final judgment. When we live like that, it helps us to remind us of the, the unvaluableness, the invaluable, uh, oh, the unva- not valuable, I can't think of the word now, the worldly things aren't valuable. And how you do not, those things are temporal, that they aren't lasting. And so we don't pursue after those things, but rather we think of the eternal kingdom that's coming and we live in light of that because we want to gain treasures there rather than the temporal things here. We're reminded in light of the second coming that this world is just passing away and we are but sojourners in this new heavens and earth to come. And we are living for that world in mind. When we live in light of the second coming, we are reminded again that it is not about us, but about the kingdom, and we start to become more meek. And I know sometimes we think of meekness as this wet paper bag type thing, but it's not the case. Biblical meekness means we don't necessarily care much about our own kingdoms, but we fight and are brave and are courageous for the kingdom of God. In other words, we have to be like Peter and Anne and bold in sharing our faith. There's a boldness that comes with advancing the kingdom. There's a boldness to go forward and do these things. We care much about that. There's an urgency to the way we live. We don't put it off. We don't say, oh, when I retire or or when time is done or after we've gone camping. But even in the midst of the camping, we do it for the glory of Christ. And final judgment gives us the words that we want to live for. We want to stand there and make sure that we are faithful. And so we hear the world done, my good and faithful servant. That's what we want. We dream for that. We long for that. We live in light of those words to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your master. That's what we want. And living in light of the second coming also means that we do not seek our own vengeance here on earth. 
that though we will be mocked and we will be ridiculed and persecuted as we make a stand to be light of the world, and while we might lose friendships and business and those things might happen, we do not have to fight for ourselves, but we know that everybody will bend a knee and stand before our Heavenly Father, and He will judge them. So we do not fight for ourselves. He will fight for us. And if we do those three things, I reckon, and there might be some more, but I reckon we will safeguard ourselves against lots and live well and run this race well. So if Peter's, one of Peter's elements here of mentioning Lot is he doesn't want us to become like it. He uses it as a term to scare us into or shock us into not being like him. We don't want to be a Lot. A Lot is never considered a hero in Scripture. His life results in nothing. He's in Hebrews 11, he's not listed there at all. We don't want to be like that. And so we change. But the other thing that Peter does is an encouragement here, and we'll end off with this relatively quickly, is that even Lot, despite all his inconsistencies, was rescued. God was so gracious to Lot. Lot wasted his life. He never lived it for the glory of God. He did not achieve anything for the glory of God. Yet God is still faithful to Lot, even though Lot is not faithful to him. And I want to encourage you this morning that God has not forsaken you if you consider yourself a lot. He has not left you. He has not abandoned you. He never will. Lot was a son of God, a child of God, and God was faithful to him all the time. And that's the character of our God. And we have a surety in Christ that we, if we are Christians and we believe in Jesus, that Jesus holds us in his hand and the Father holds us in his hands. And that no one, is able to snatch him out. But nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Romans 8, verses 37 to 39. And this promise for us is sure. And I want to encourage you that if this is where you are, you have not been forsaken. But I also want to stir up and wake up in you saying, don't stay there. Don't stay there. Make sure that you become unlike lots for the glory of Christ. I'm going to hand it to Matt, and he's going to do the response time. Let's just close our eyes where you are. I'm going to lead this response time in prayer this morning. Father, come and wash us with your word. Lord, it's easy to point the finger and look at the world and other Christians and other believers and this morning to criticize them for behavior and closeness to the world, but be like you said, Jesus, have a log in our own eye. And so this morning, Lord, we're asking, come take out the log through your word. Show us this morning where we are living too closely to the world in our affections and our desires and our ambition, in our expectation, Lord, won't you do that for us? And I pray right now, Lord, would you speak to each one listening? Show us, Lord, where we are too close to what is spiritually dangerous for us. Lord, we don't want to be like Lot this morning. We want to be like Abraham, who did far more for a city perishing through prayer and through staying close to you and upholding righteousness 
than a lot who lived a life of compromise. Lord, help us see the wisdom of your ways and the courage to live it this morning. We want to be a church that is fully devoted to your word, Lord, and to your ways and the leadership of your Holy Spirit. Help us see the barrenness on what's on offer, Lord, outside of Christ. And this morning I pray for a renewed sense of the glory of what we have in Jesus. That that fullness would guard us from running after what doesn't satisfy. So, Lord, as we worship now, we just pray that you would fill our hearts again with reminders of what we have in you. Help us be a people that sees the value of what we worship in Christ. You are more to us, Jesus, than anything we can ask or imagine. And we want to savor you now in Jesus' name. Amen.
So cry of our hearts, Lord, one life lived for you. Oh, Jesus, this morning has been such an eye-opener, such a blessing to be called to the things that matter, to be called to this world, to love it, Lord, as unto you, to show the difference of Christ and what your eternal purposes are, Lord, for mankind. Thank you so much that in the gospel we have purpose, we see clearly, Lord. Thank you for Jesus this morning calling us closer to himself. Oh, God, as a church, we want to be nearer and nearer to you. That, Lord, we might be of more use to this world. Set us on course, Lord, for you this week, we pray. 
Give us a heart for the people around us. Might the joy of Jesus overflow into every conversation, in every thought of our mind. Lord, might our delight in you bring about such a sense of purpose, of wanting to share what we have in you, Lord, with those around us. We love you, Lord. We're so thankful for speaking to us this morning. Might it grow in our hearts. We're looking forward to being together next week, God. We're just praying that you'd keep us, keep us close to you. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. We're going to see you next week, hopefully in person, if not online again. And may the Lord bless you. Thank you.